Welcome to episode number 82 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Now, today, we're talking with Christian Hayes. He's a land real estate agent out of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. This is part of a series of podcasts that we do to highlight the agents, their lives, and their backgrounds throughout the United States so that, one, the people can understand the types of people that they would be working with when they work with a land sale. Uh, it's it's good to know that kind of thing. And it's it also provides good information because each land agent provides unique experience, unique backgrounds, and unique perspective on land itself. So we try to get those insights uh, for, for you listeners out there. So Christian has had a unique background. He started out ranching, has worked in forestry, and is now the owner of Hayes Land Services out of Oklahoma. Uh, he did not ask me to plug his company there. I wanted to do that by choice because Christian is an excellent person, and I think that that's cool. Uh, check out Hayes Land Services there in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, or the, the surrounding regions. Um, he does a great job. So he has a unique background, a unique perspective. The one thing that, that unifies as you talk to land agents from around the country is they all have a love for land. Their, their backgrounds might be in forestry. They might be farming. It might just be going outdoors with, with their parents when they were young. Uh, no matter what, it is a love for the land and Christian uh, is no exception there is is where he he fell in love with the land early and has carried that on. Now, I do have to throw a disclaimer on this episode. I was right in the middle of uh, of the fun and games of COVID. So my voice is not all that hot. That's where it's good, though, because the uh, the guests are much better to listen to than I am. This one, uh, yeah, just ignore the voice and uh, let's let's get on with this. Now, please sit back and enjoy. I'm gonna throw the recording on and uh, go from there. Alrighty. So I am sitting here today with Christian Hayes out of Oklahoma City. And uh, Christian, just tell us a little bit of background. You're an agent with National Land Realty and we're just here to talk a little bit about some off-season prep and uh but tell me a little bit how you got here how'd you start out as an as a land agent yeah so um you know it's really similar to a lot of uh i guess guys definitely within our company but also just you know people that get into land sales in general uh have a background in you know hunting and then my family were ranchers on my dad's side were ranchers in new mexico and west texas and then just kind of growing up in middle school and high school worked on farms and ranches here in in central and northern Oklahoma mainly uh, worked in New Mexico for a little bit which was a really good uh, experience out there and then going into college I started as ag business I knew I wanted to do something kind of agricultural agriculturally related um, figured out a lot of that was uh, sitting in an office doing excel sheets and thought <laughs> no I need to be outside more so I, long story short, ended up studying uh, natural resource and ecology management with kind of a focus in forestry at Oklahoma State. And so graduated with that. And while I was in school, I worked at a ranch north of Stillwater in northern Oklahoma and just kind of got a lot of really good hands-on experience, um, you know, managing land and then also got got involved with 
uh, what's called a prescribed burn association up in the northern part of the state. And then after college, graduated and got into the timber industry. Um, we do have timber in Oklahoma, uh, especially in the southeast side. Everyone thinks of us as the plains, which which that covers a lot of the state. But the eastern side is actually very uh, timber industry heavy. So I was kind of managing logging crews and buying timber down there for a little bit. Moved back and knew I wanted to obviously stick with do you know working with land, working with landowners. So contacted a few different brokerages and then ended up getting in contact with Logan Eaton and uh, and Mark and got on board. I know a lot of people mentioned Mark with getting on board, but he's good at the recruiting side. So they kind of brought me on and I've been on a national land now for about for just a, a little bit over a year. So starting to get some some good experience. All right. So ranching, I, I'm just curious on as a side note, ranching in Oklahoma versus ranching in New Mexico. What what are the differences? Yeah, what 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 is it like going from Oklahoma to riding around in 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 New Mexico? So you know, obviously every outfit is a little bit different. Um, the biggest thing that I noticed was stocking rates. Uh, I was in central New Mexico, and out there you're looking at you know probably at least fifty acres ahead, um, or at least an animal unit that kind of thing, and in Oklahoma. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but we're a really diverse uh, area. So, you know, in the Panhandle, they might only get 12 to 15 inches of annual rainfall. Down in southeast Oklahoma, you're looking at over 50 inches a year of annual rainfall. Um, so, but here in the central area, we're kind of looking at, you know, roughly six to 10 acres per head or animal unit. So that was a big difference. Also, just uh, what I thought was really cool was, and so, you know, some people still do it here, but the use of horses still, I just love seeing the kind of, you know, keeping with the history and the the culture of ranching over there. So it was a really good experience. Uh, family friend over there, they taught me a lot and really grateful for it. But I love my home state. <laughs> I did, I was going to say, I picture, I, I picture more of the Southern Oklahoma when I, when I mentally picture Oklahoma and I, when I, when I branch from there to go into thinking about going over it and ranching in New Mexico, it's like, desert and everything wants to kill you and then you go to where you get a little bit more rainfall in Oklahoma it's got to be a lot different just the just the two styles yeah yeah and I guess another thing was I you know we have obviously a lot of snakes here in Oklahoma in the central and northern part we don't have nearly as many especially the venomous snakes and clearing old fence lines in New Mexico and also checking Brandon pins before Brandon season uh you will never or I will never forget the you can like when I was clearing fence, you would know if a rattlesnake is close by from the smell. And so I will never forget that smell. And if I'm ever in the timber or out in western Oklahoma, uh, if I don't hear the rattle, I can at least probably smell it. See, I have a thing with that. Like I, I've, I've been tagged by a rattlesnake before and it's I, to this day, I even hear the sound and it's like I go into fight or flight. I mean, it's like, no, I don't mess with them. But down south where the snakes don't make noise just freaks me out, man. Yeah. Yeah. I try to, a lot of people, I had a guy in my forestry school that he would catch snakes by the tail and stuff like that. And that is not for me. I don't like those things. No, thank you. No, no. And, no, and I don't even care if it makes me look like a wussy. I'm okay. Right. With it. Like, nah, I, I don't need to look that tough. <laughs> Absolutely not. So, okay. So your experience goes into, into natural resources 
ecology management. Um, you know, you, you have a background in ranching and, and then timber, you know, how did you go from, from ecology and, and, you know, it's kind of specializing in, in ranching kind of area. And then you jump into timber. Well, uh, so I'm from a town called Cash in Oklahoma, which is, it's Northwest of Oklahoma city. It's kind of getting into a little bit of the culture of Northwest Oklahoma, which is, that is kind of what people think of when they picture Oklahoma, just open plains um and wheat fields but uh so when i knew that i wanted to do something outside i in our college of ecology which is w within the ag uh, school i was thinking about either range wildlife or forestry and so i just went ahead and talked to the uh i guess the you know the head of our department and he said well, uh, wildlife, you pretty much have to get a, you know, master's degree and maybe PhD, you know, there's a job placement rate of maybe 35%. So I'm like, nope, that's not why I went to school. I went to school to get a job. So the range is like 87% job placement rate. And I was like, that's not bad. He said, forestry, 100% job placement rate, jobs, you know, out, out the buku. So I just went ahead. I said, okay, well, that sounds good. I went to school to get a job. So I'll do that. But I am really glad that I picked it because I was still able to take range classes and wildlife classes and that kind of stuff. So just kind of gives me a good, I guess, well-rounded understanding of it. I was going to say, like, because I mean, it, that's why I was asking the question is, you know, you came from field in the area that, you know, not a lot of trees. And then you went into a profession and revolving around trees. Yeah. When, so, when, I, when I first met, you know, when I was meeting some of our logging crews that we had on contract when I was in procurement, uh, one of them asked where I was from, just kind of getting to know me. And I told him Cashin. He said, Cashin, there's not a damn tree up there. How'd you get into forestry? <laughs> said, yeah, man. It worked out though. It worked out. It worked out. So, all right. So getting kind of in the, in the topic, because this involves forestry, um, you know, let's talk specifically about hunting properties and we are in, you know, I'm going to say end of January, moving into February. We're, we can almost smell spring on the way in some areas, not in my area, winter's just starting, but like you can spring is, you know, on the horizon. Uh, so we're talking off season, hunting season's ending in a lot of areas, you know, some, hunting season has been over for a while in a lot of areas, but still have some late seasons here and there. Um, we're going into off season and it's the spring. We like to call it mud season in the Northwest. Uh Tell me about some of the prepping that you want to do in in this downtime when when, it, when you're heading to this time period. Yeah, so a lot of people, you know, the colder weather, season's over. I know here in Oklahoma, archery season always ends January 15th, so it ended 10 days ago. And a lot of people are going to get stir crazy. Um, so there's a lot of things you can do. And I guess for a little bit of background on my philosophy of land management, um, you know, I am very, uh, I guess, focused and interested in what kind of the historical ecology of that area and also just the native plants in that area. And that's just because, you know, a lot of people, when they talk about the history of wildlife in America, they kind of use the quote unquote time of European contact as like the, I guess, measuring rod for wildlife numbers and diversity and stuff like that. So, here in Oklahoma, kind of north central and central Oklahoma, um, there's a book called uh, A Tour on the Prairies by Washington Irving. And they came through uh, this area in the 1830s and they talk about 
elk being here. We had pronghorn, mule deer, uh, you know, uh, prairie chickens, all this kind of stuff that was here. Obviously, black bears, wolves, and quail too, and bison. Um, so, and we still have a lot of that stuff, but it kind of got pushed out because of different land management, you know, changes. Um, and there was there was frequent fire across the landscape. A lot of the southern plains, including this area, burned roughly every one to six years, um, and that is a lot higher fire frequency than we're seeing right now in a, on a lot of the properties. Um, so, you know, those native plants, they can provide a lot of food and cover throughout the year that uh, some things like, for example, a food plot um, might not give or, uh, or help with, which I'm not against food plots. I'll actually get on that here in a little bit, but uh, I guess for some, some, a general idea to keep in mind when you're managing your property is you're trying to manage and control sunlight and then also plant diversity. And so the reason that you want the plant diversity, and that doesn't mean, you know, crop field to wooded area to CRP ground, that also just means within the plant species, how much diversity you have in that, for example, CRP ground or timber stand, that kind of thing. Um, and the sunlight is a lot of times that limiting factor. I know most areas here in kind of the cross timbers ecoregion in the Southern Plains and then also the wooded areas of Oklahoma, they're very much overstocked with timber, whether that be hardwood or uh, down here, we have a lot of Eastern red cedar, which are just overtaking grasslands, but also the wooded areas. And when wooded areas are just overstocked, it leads to a buildup of a death layer, which is like the fallen leaves and down woody debris. And that's blocking that sunlight from hitting the soil. And that prevents a lot of the beneficial plants from growing at all. So you go into a lot of woods and you kind of kick up the, the leaves and there will not be a single thing growing down there as far as- I was going to say, that's what they call the dead zone, right? When, when, yes. When your crown spacing is too close, the trees are too close and the sunlight's not getting through, you end up with that dead zone in there and there's nothing, there's nothing running around. Right. Yeah. And so a lot of times you just see here, like when I'm walking around, the main thing I'm seeing a lot is it's called buck brush and uh, you know, it's a native plant. There are some good things that come from it, but not just a few stems here and there. Then that's the only thing. Um, and deer and turkeys and a lot of things live primarily off ground plants. Like everyone thinks of uh, mast, mass producing trees like acorns, but the, and the deer target those in the fall, but I kind of like to tell people, think about those as ice cream. Like it's a really good treat for certain parts of the year, but they're not going to sustain their lives and their yearly, I guess, day-to-day -day living off of those things. Um, and there was a, you know, a lot of people like to talk, there's a guy in Tennessee, his name's Dr. Craig Harper. He does a lot of really good uh, research, but also videos and stuff like that that are really good to watch if you're thinking about manage your prop managing your property um and one of them he's talking about a crop tree release in a 100% canopy cover forest and so that 100% canopy cover forest just to kind of put numbers to it a lot of times it can have roughly 50 to 100 pounds of per acre of uh you know things to eat basically in a, in the simple terms um but if you clear that, if you do what's called a crop tree release, and so you figure out, you know, which which of your uh, oak trees are producing the most acorns and you kind of 
release or cut the trees around there, the acorn production, the mass production can actually go up by roughly 50%, but the forest floor production, the stuff on the forest floor can increase by maybe 500 to 1000%. And so there can be a lot of benefits from, you know, just thinning out some trees and uh, maybe following up by some prescribed burns. Yeah, well, and so so prescribed burning does a few things, right? Like you're talking about, it's there's certain plants that a burn will make their seeds sprout, right? And there's there's certain plants that thrive in it that that come up more after a burn. Um, and and you're also talking about eliminating some of that brush that inhibits motion of animals through areas, uh, you know, brings light to the forest floor, that kind of thing. And but you were just talking to the history of everything where in your area they have elk, they had black bear, they had mule deer and stuff. And those get attributed to being like, oh, those are in the Rocky Mountain kind of things. But I mean, elk and, and mule deer and those kind of animals were originally kind of plain centric animals, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of, um, a lot of uh, you know, elk and then also just even deer. Like that, I was talking about that ranch that worked at North of Stillwater. Everyone always thinks about deer you know, hanging out in the, in the forest and they do, but, uh, that place, uh, my, my boss, he burned a lot, you know, roughly every two to three, maybe four years. And he had some really good, you know, native grasses, native forbs, tall blue stem, all this kind of stuff, uh, that was, you know, maybe chest high and I could not, I'm going to pause real quick and my dog's out. Sorry. Ha. Sorry about that. No worries. Um, yeah, so my boss would have all these tall uh, grasses and everything, and I could not hunt there in the mornings because you'd walk through and there'd be 30, 40 deer bedded in this small area because um, they were eating on that stuff, but then also being able to use it for, for cover. Um, so kind of pushing stuff back and figuring out what your area um, I guess looked like ecology wise historically can be a really good starting point and kind of guide to what it should look like and what would be really helpful for it to be, um, you know, as far as from a health perspective, ecological health, but also helping out your hunting. Yeah. Well, and so when you're looking at doing this, let's, let's take a, I want to use an example of like a thousand acres, right? But I mean, not everybody owns a thousand acres where a lot of landowners are like 10, 20, you know, for recreational kind of stuff, but let's just take like a thousand acres. And so if you're looking at doing a prescribed burn, I'm just going to throw it out there as, you know, again, I'm not afraid to ask dumb questions. Do you just want to burn the whole thing every five years, like the full thousand acres and just take it all down? Or do you want to rotate certain sections at certain increments so that you're sort of staggering the ecology of the overall area? How do you want to manage something like that? Yeah, so um, one thing I would think about was patch burning on that place. So it's it helps uh, both in terms of, like you said, kind of having uh, di different stages of succession on that place. And then also just manpower. It's it's a lot easier to burn, you know, five to ten acres by yourself or with maybe one or two other people than it is a thousand acres. 
but also with the thousand acres, like there are some people that do that because just topographically and based off, you know, different, whether it's woodland, kind of shrubby grassland based off where creeks are, there are going to be natural spots where there's a lot less intensity, fire intensity, um, and then also just kind of, you know, hold breaks in the fire where it doesn't even reach to. Um, so that's how it kind of, that's how we got that diversity uh, historically when the Native Americans were doing a lot of prescribed burns and, you know, there were some areas that didn't get hit. But as far as doing it nowadays, yeah, I would definitely, there's actually a lot of good research, uh, shameless plug for my alma mater, uh, Oklahoma State does a lot of really good research on, uh, on patch burn and also incorporating it with patch burn grazing where you can, you don't have to have nearly as much cross fencing for livestock and they'll actually selectively graze those areas that have been burned, you know, in the last year or so, because a lot of that new growth is coming up and the same thing for wildlife, you're going to have the early successional stages of, you know, the property where you have burned most recently. And then, you know, if you have a spot where you haven't burned it in uh, four to four, you know, three, four or five years, then that's going to be a little bit more, uh, shrubby or thick for, you know, bedding, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so you were talking a little bit, you said you weren't going to, we weren't going to down food plots too much, but I, I was wondering where you were headed with that. Now, now I'm curious. Well, tell me a little bit about your, uh, what you can do in the off season with food plots. Yeah. So what I mean by that is like, <laughs> there are, you can manage your property if you're managing it the right way with native you know, plants and trees and that kind of thing, you're going to have really good um, habitat and, and a really good care, a really high carrying capacity. Um, but a lot of people like to do food plots. And so it's, if that gets them really excited to, um, you know, get out and work on their property, I'd say, don't let that be the only thing that you do. But also if you really want to do it, what I always suggest is instead of, you know, a big, uh, 40 acre food plot, do some five acre, what I call kill plots to kind of focus, focus the deer that you can put your, uh, tree stands up there and focus that deer activity, but still having that, that native ecosystem around there to have all the diversity of plants that are going to supplement them at different times of year. You, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned acorns being dessert so you, you got your dessert area there in the middle of it where it's like there's the good stuff but then there's food all around to support right right absolutely and you know if i was a deer i'd probably think a rat uh radish or something like that was a was a dessert too but it's just it's really good to have all those different um i guess things to choose from like for example here in the winter one thing I see, I guess, uh, you know, just dormant season, not necessarily just winter, but also late fall and early spring before a bunch of those plants start to come back here in Oklahoma and kind of in the surrounding regions where we have green briar, like a lot of people hate the green briar. And I completely understand because walking through that stuff is not fun, but those deer really like eating green briar leaf in the, in the dormant months. And it, like I, I've actually hunted over some kind of green briar thickets that are close to trails and bedding areas and stuff like that, and seeing a decent amount of bucks just kind of cruising the green briar, eating those leaves off there. Yeah. So when when and when you're talking about doing this, talk about your your typical span between burns. Like so, 
because burning is a big part of this, right? Like burning kind of brings out the native grasses, brings out the native foods, any kind of like forbs in the area that are coming up, like it'll inspire that growth. What's, is there a generalized rotation or do you want to have somebody that like really kind of knows that specific area helping you out with this or how, how do you want to manage that? Yeah, it's, it's gonna, you know, I'm obviously more familiar with kind of the Southern Plains, the cross timbers eco region, and then uh, Eastern Oklahoma. So it's gonna be kind of region dependent at, uh, to a certain point, but down here and just kind of, I guess in more areas than here, there's some really good resources online, but also there are some people that can provide some guidance at low to even no cost. Um, so that's going to be, you know, your quail forever, um, national deer association, your state forestry agency, NRCS, stuff like that. Um, but I know here there's, there's actually, there's a place in Southeastern Oklahoma, it's called, uh, Pushmataha wildlife management area. And there has been a, an experiment and kind of research going on down there since I believe it was the eighties. And it's these small plots. I think that they're about five acres each and you can walk down this road and they're on either side. And so they basically, I was, uh, there's a forester that I talked to and he said, yeah, you know, when I'm doing kind of my consulting work and the, the property owner doesn't know exactly what they want their property to look like, obviously I'm going to, you know, base it off recommendations as far as what you know if it's a hunting property what their deer are going to need and that kind of thing but he said also just as far as aesthetics goes i can just take them down this road it's maybe a half mile long and it's almost like window shopping for properties oh i want my property to look like that and he can look at the you know map of the deal and say oh well that one has been has had all the hardwoods thinned all the pine clear cut and then burned every three years and so those plots are set up you know, some of them are burned every year. Some of them are every two years, three and four. And, you know, as you prolong those periods, those burn cycles, um, you're going to have more brush coming up, more woody encroachment, but sometimes that can be good to a certain extent as far as uh, bedding cover and that kind of thing. And maybe if you're trying to encourage some oak regrowth, if you've had a bunch of, you know, hickory or something like that starting to come up or maple, you can start burning uh, at first at a shorter cycle to try to kill those maple and hickory and maybe also cut them or do some hack and squirt, but then lengthen it a little bit to give those oak sprouts, those oak seedlings or saplings, a little bit of time to get bigger and get some thicker bark to, uh, to start growing. And then you can, you know, reduce your, your burn interval. If that's kind of your goal to have more of a grassy understory. Yeah, and it's 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 funny too because like I I've talked to uh, Mark Anderson right he's a, a national land realty agent in uh, Mississippi, in uh, Mississippi Louisiana, Louisiana, and he's a prescribed burn guy too like specialist in it and the the similarities but there are differences in your areas like you guys the, the different different management styles a little bit but it's it's all kind of very similar, um, but you mentioned prescribed burn associations and. And you mentioned it as like a neighbors helping neighbors kind of thing. And from an overall, if you're managing for, for wildlife, there is kind of the, the I'm not going to call it a philosophy. It's more of a law that like, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters what your neighbors do too. 
how do you get people on board for something like a burn program? How do you pull everybody in like that? And how do you make contact and get everybody on the same page? So I know that they have it in other states too, like Kansas and Nebraska and some, uh, I know Florida has a really good system, but you know, obviously I'm more familiar with the Oklahoma system and it's called OKPBA, which is Oklahoma Prescribed Burn Association. And what these things are is, like you said, it's kind of a neighbors helping neighbors model. And that pulls equipment, personnel, and experience just to, you know, conduct safe and effective prescribed burns. And it's at very, very minimal cost to the landowner. Um, you know, a lot of these, they're looking at maybe 50, maybe a hundred dollars a year membership dues. And then if you're an active member, it might be as low as, which means you maybe help out with four I was going to say, you got to go out and run a, run a machine for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, helping out your neighbors. But as far as when you're burning your place, it might be as little as a dollar per acre, which, you know, compare that to, for example, mechanical work. If someone's going to have someone come in with a skid steer and a, and a mulcher head, you might look at uh, 800 to a thousand bucks a day. And that might only get an acre done. Um, so saves a lot of money. It's really good, um, you know, for the resources, for the land. Um, but a lot of people, sometimes there's kind of a culture that comes around it. So a lot of times when it's starting in an area, some people might be a little hesitant or nervous. Um, but once they start seeing, you know, once their neighbor starts burning every year or three years, whatever, they're going to see that benefit and then say, Hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm doing these burns with this PBA and they're going to a lot of times jump on board. And it's also just really nice to know your neighbors and everyone doing the right thing. Um, yeah, it really helps out the resource. And uh, like I said, a, a big problem we have here in Oklahoma is Eastern red cedar uh, kind of taking over a lot of areas, especially grasslands and, they're a, they're a native species. They were actually, they've been here for a long time, but in the past they were kind of kept at bay by the frequent fires that we had here, but just through, you know, habitat or land fragmentation and a lot less people managing their properties, they're taken over. And since our, since the PBA that I'm most involved with uh, up in the North central part of the state got, got started, you can just see from satellite image, those, those Eastern red cedars kind of just the green, the green glacier as they're called just shrinking and that, that native grassland coming back. And a lot of people, a lot of them are livestock producers and they're having, they're getting a lot of benefits from that and having some really good, uh, really good effects. So you own your own business as well. Hayes land services. Yes. Tell I me do. a little bit about you. Tell me a little bit about this thing. So, uh, you know, with National Land Realty, obviously, I'm I'm able to help people buy and sell land, but I also just wanted to still be able to work with the land itself as far as the management goes. And so just want to, and also just have a, you know, additional resource for, for the people that I work with and both, you know, other agents at National Land, but also people that I help buy, you know, both the buyers and sellers. And so I'm just uh, open to, you know, for consultation um, do some habitat management projects as far as, you know, I've done some hack and squirt, uh, doing kind of working with the NRCS contract for this landowner over in Eastern Oklahoma. Um, this, this specific one, he was wanting to, he had, you know, four or 500 acres of a family ranch that has been in this family for generations. And he was wanting to keep his, his canopy just cause he likes the trees and, you know, Eastern Oklahoma has a lot of trees, but he also has a lot of cattle. 
and was wanting to, you know, make sure that there was plenty for him to eat on the forest floor. And so I kind of went through with this uh, prescription and was able to kill specific species and also size classes. Um, so he still has a woodland area, but he also has an understory component that those cattle can go in there and eat. So you're working with buying and selling land as well as land management, land cultivation, and uh, and prescribed burning all at the same time with anybody that is willing to work with you, right? Absolutely. Give me a call anytime. I, I man, like I, it. I love it. I love being able to work with people and just, you know, seeing the seeing the positive changes uh, on properties and also just the there are really good results. Like there's a, a place that me and Dylan Smith sold recently uh, within the past probably six months. A guy bought it right. It was either right before or right when archery season started here in Oklahoma. And I got so happy because he sent me a text. Uh, you know, it was only a few weeks into season, just probably within a month of purchasing the place. He hadn't even done any, you know, habitat improvement projects yet, but uh, he was able to get a big old buck out there. So it's awesome seeing the, you know, just the results that people have and, and helping people. They've been wanting land for forever. And so finally helping, helping them kind of achieve that dream was great. That yes, that's, uh, that's gotta be, that's gotta be like the, the crown on top. I gotta ask you, Dylan had a wild story about a landowner calling him wanting to sell within 24 hours. Were you involved in that thing at all? Yes, uh, that's a little embarrassing. They actually uh, contacted me first and I called him. I was like, dude, this is a scam. This is not real. Um, and I was like, do you want to work this? He said, ah, I mean, I'll try. I kind of think it's a scam too, but you know, might as well try. And it ended up being, being real, a, being real and being a good story. And um, yeah, so I was, I was part of that, but honestly, he kind of, he kind of took the lead on that one. So I'm, I'm thankful for him for that. Yeah, so anybody listening, check out Dylan Smith's podcast that he, he did with us earlier. Uh, there's a landowner called him up and just said, I want to sell my land in 24. It was 24 hours. Yeah. They basically just said, Hey, you know, I need an offer in 24 hours. And, and yeah. And so you were the first call. They called you first. And, okay. Yeah. Well, technically it was actually an email at first. And okay. so you know, I just, so it looks extra scammy at that point. Yeah. And so, you know, being online with our emails and contact info, I do get a lot of scam, a lot of spam and scam stuff. And yep. this one was not one. That's, that's fantastic. Well, hey, <laughs> Christian, uh, tell anybody listening of the area where you work and, uh, and you know, what area you cover and, and who you work with. Yeah, uh, I work, I'm licensed here in Oklahoma, so I can help you, you know, anywhere around the state. I've gotten to know it pretty good. I already, I already knew the state pretty well, but just being able to travel around with National Land Realty uh, has helped me get to know a lot of the highways and the roads and towns a lot better. So anywhere you need help, uh, let me know. I'm also on Instagram at chayes under dash land and then uh, Facebook at Christian Hayes National Land Realty. Um, got a TikTok too. If you want to watch some really good land videos, whether that be there we go. Or, uh, management, whatever. And you do an excellent job on those. Actually, could, I'm going to make sure. Can you send those to me? Email those to me, and I'll I'll post them in the show notes. The links to all the socials. Yeah, absolutely.
Perfect. And then the, the phone number is 405-974-1754. Uh, and then the email's on the website and anything you want to know, just let me know. I'll, I'm really glad to help you out. Excellent. Christian, thank you so much for your time. Very much appreciated. Yes, sir. Thanks, Mac. This concludes episode number 82 of the National Land Realty Podcast, talking with Christian Hayes out of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You can learn more about the buying and selling of land at nationallands.com.